0: Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Hello, and welcome back to Abide in Liberty, everybody. We're coming into part two of our multi-part series talking about the economy, uh, the issue with inflation we're facing now, and the root causes behind why We're seeing this inflation, first of all, and then why that's leading to um, the bank failures that we've seen recently, the turbulence in the stock market that resulted from that, and why people are so nervous about this and and really how it could uh, spell quite a dangerous outcome for us if we're not really, really careful. Last week, uh, if you missed... You're definitely going to want to go back and get part one because we're going to jump in right where we left off. Um, and if you don't have part one under you, um, this is probably not going to make a whole lot of sense. All right, we left off with talking about uh, two of the levers that the Federal Reserve uses to control inflation rates. And the first inflation, yeah, inflation rates. The first is fractional banking. Um, the second is interest rates, and the third is treasury bonds. So. All of these are methods for controlling the supply, the amount of money in the economy. When you have more money chasing not too few goods, you have inflation. When you have more goods than there is money chasing it, you have deflation. You have prices going down. So at Treasury Bonds, the way that this is used to control the money supply in the marketplace is um, if, so let's first, before we jump into that talk about what a bond is. So a bond is debt. And as, a, as an individual, most of the debt that we're familiar with is through a mortgage, right? So we want to buy a house. We go to a bank. They look at all of our financial information, decide whether we can pay back the loan. Um, they give us exactly the amount of money to the cent that we need to buy that house and cover the appraisal and all the closing costs. And then we make our payments to, uh, to that mortgage lender, Well, companies and countries can, you know, there's not normally a single bank that the United States, for example, can go to who has $30 trillion hanging out there that they can loan to the United States. So companies that need large loans or countries that need larger loans than banks can give will refer to bonds. And bonds is kind of the original crowdfunding um, concept, except you got to pay it back. So, with a bond, uh, we'll we'll just use the U.S. government an example. They'll issue these certificates. So if they sell a hundred dollar bond, they'll put out and say, "Look, if you buy this hundred dollar bond, I will pay you, let's say, two percent in one year." As a person, you know, as I'm looking at the economy, uh, it's, things are a little rough, but U.S. government historically, at least, has been pretty stable. So I'm going to go buy that hundred dollar bond. I give a hundred dollar to the U.S. government they give me this certificate. So in this case, I'm the lender. I hold the bond, but I'm the lender. I'm the one that lent that money to the U.S. government. And now I have this certificate, and this is all done electronically now, but just for sake of description, I have the certificate that says in one year, I will be paid $100. I'll get my $100 back plus 2% interest. I get two bucks in exchange for loaning them that money. And when the U.S. government does this and issues Hundreds and thousands, or even millions of these bonds, they can get the funding and the debt that they need to fund their operations, Um, not by going to a single bank, but by going to hundreds and thousands and even millions of individual um, buyers. And anybody can buy these bonds. I can buy them. You can buy them. Your bank can buy them. The company that you work for can buy them. China can buy them and has bought a lot of them. so that's how bonds that's how bonds work. And if they default, it's like defaulting on a loan. If they don't make that payment, um, then they can go into bankruptcy. They have to go through a process where they you know the court's trying and figure out who to pay. and if you're a debt holder, you're a little bit higher on the list of those who get paid. Now, um, in the case of the United States. They, you'll hear bonds referred to in a lot of different ways. You'll hear them referred to as T-bills or treasury bonds or treasury notes, and they all mean basically the same thing. There's bonds of different duration and different interest rates. There's very short-term T-bills or treasury bonds with lower interest rates, and there's longer-term treasury bonds um, with a little bit higher interest rate, right? Because over the course of 30 years, that's a lot more risky than over the course of the next year. So they have to entice you into that longer-term bond with a little bit of a better interest rate. And that's all operates on the same risk-reward principle um, that meant that that is involved with anything financial that we do. That's why if you are willing to do a 15-year mortgage, you're going to get a better interest rate than a 30-year mortgage because to the bank, the risk of you still being around and healthy and able to work to pay that loan off in 15 years is better than maybe over the next 30 years. Now, so let's walk this through from the very first time that the U.S. government issues a bond. So they do a new bond issue. And as an individual, I go and I decide to buy one of those $100 bonds that yields 2% interest in one year. Now, let's say that uh, I do that, the government gets their money, and now I have this asset, and it's worth something. Because, There's a secondary market that allows me, if I wanted to, if I wanted to get out of that deal, I can go sell that to someone else and let them pick it up. And I can recoup my money almost instantaneously because there's such a a robust secondary market for trading those kinds of things. I mean, think of it almost like a Craigslist, right? If you go and you buy um, a lawn chair at Walmart today, they get the money from that initial purchase. But when you go post that on Craigslist and sell it to your neighbor or someone across town, that money goes from them to you. Walmart doesn't get a cut of that. And it works the same way with this. You know, Craigslist is a secondary market. It's not the primary market between you and the producer or the original seller. And it's the same thing with the bond market. The original seller was the US government. They got their money the first time that they sold it. But as I sell it on the bond exchange, which is similar to the stock exchange, that asset transfers between me and someone else, and the US government has nothing to do with that. But let's say I decide that I, you know, six months in, I kind of want my money back. I've got that, man, there's a really nice lawn chair at Walmart that I want now that I'm talking about lawn chairs. So I sell my bond to someone online. This is all done through an electronic market. I log in and put in my brokerage account that, hey, I want to sell this thing. And someone else says, hey, I want to buy this thing. And it happens very, very smoothly and instantaneously. You never meet the person. You don't have to meet them, you know, like Craigslist in a public place because you're worried about what's going to happen. This is all facilitated very nicely and cleanly. So I, I sell that bond. I get my hundred bucks back and I go buy my lawn chair. And it's a, I mean, hundred dollar lawn chair, you know, that's a nice lawn chair. So, that's kind of the way primary and secondary markets work. So, another way that the Federal Reserve can reduce or increase the money supply in the market is to either sell or buy treasury bonds. So, if in this case, if I have this treasury bond and I don't want it anymore, and I am going to sell it to someone else on the secondary market. No, government's not involved now, but I'm just going to go sell it to that guy over there. I sell it to him and he pays me for it. So that money comes out of his account and into mine. But when you look at the economy as a whole, there's still the same amount of money out there exchanging hands. The money supply doesn't change from that transaction. But if I have that same bond and instead of selling it to somebody else, the person or the the entity that I'm selling it to is the Federal Reserve. Okay, I'm selling that bond to them. They pay me for that bond. Now money is coming out of their account and into mine. The money supply, that money that the Federal Reserve had was not in circulation. Nobody else was using that to buy goods, sell goods, hire employees, or any of that. That Money now is additional money in the economy that I can go spend to buy stuff. And it wasn't there before. So now there's more money chasing the same goods than were there before. Now, if there's more money chasing the same goods, that um, affects the inflation rate. Inflation will go up. Now, conversely, if the Federal Reserve wants to decrease the money supply— instead of buying bonds from people like you and me on the open market, they can sell bonds. And so now, instead of me selling a bond, let's say I put up on my little exchange account that I want to buy a U.S. Treasury bond. And I don't know really who's on the other side of that transaction. But if the Federal Reserve is the one selling that, and we get matched up, and that transaction happens, then they give me that Treasury bond Cash comes out of my account and into theirs, and now that money is removed from circulation from the general economy. Less money in the economy means the inflation rate goes down. Okay, so now that we've talked about the mechanisms that the Federal Reserve uses to control the supply of money, which is another way to say control the inflation rate, so just quick review, they can use bonds, they can buy bonds, which gets money going back into the hands of individuals like you and me if they're buying those bonds from us, or they can sell bonds where we're buying it from them, giving our money to them for those bonds, which brings money out of the economy. The other way that we talked about is through um, interest rates. If interest rates are higher, less people want to buy, or less people want to borrow money, which means that there's lower reserve, and then the fractional banking, they can um, adjust... How much banks are required to keep in reserve, which uh, affects how much more money is able to create it as more people take that money, deposit in accounts, and that cycle continues. And before um, before jumping in to—before going any further, we're going to start taking some of these tools that we've been talking about and looking at how those have been used and before doing that, I want to pause and just take a brief minute, um, kind of at the end of this episode and before we jump into the third segment, to talk about and remind ourselves of the principles of freedom as they relate to the economy that we talked about during the segment on the 5,000-year leap. If you haven't gone through, it's a, another multi-segment series, um but it's, it's really foundational to everything else we're going to talk about. So just by way of review, I'm not going to go into as much detail as I did originally. But number one, um, this country was founded on the principle of being a free market where the government is there to help facilitate transactions and make sure that if we, you and I have a contract and you violate it, I have a way to be recompensed for that not be taken advantage of. Um, The government's there to make sure that um, if I'm able to accumulate through my industry and my hard work certain assets, that the guy next door can't just come and rob me of that and beat me up or kill me for those assets. There's law in place to prevent that from happening. Um, They're here to help prevent monopolies from forming, which clog up the works of um, a free market society. So there's a few areas where the government is necessary, but outside of those few exceptions, In a free market economy, the government keeps its hands clean. And as we've already seen, the government stepping in and controlling inflation rates uh, is not one of those principles of a free market economy that we were founded on. That is a violation of it. Another um, principle of finance that we talked about is the importance of private and not public welfare, that it's the responsibility of us as individuals to take care of each other and not be forced into it through government taxation. And in fact, you know, as we look at the idea of a free market and interest rates and inflation, that was not something that for the first 120 years of our country was set by the government. That was not controlled by them during this area where we went from nothing to superpower to, I mean, just this incredible growth and intellectual discovery and scientific discovery and technological advancement that all happened. And the groundwork for that occurred during this period when the government wasn't controlling all of that. Now, you may make an argument that we need a central bank like this, which didn't exist at the beginning, and for a very long time there was no central bank. You might make the argument that's necessary to facilitate international payments and make us more competitive internationally. Um, It's a great way to allow private individuals to get access to U.S. government bonds And, you know, sure, there may be an argument to be made there. And Alexander Hamilton, who's the main author of the Federalist Papers, would agree with you. That was something that he and um, a lot of the early founders butted heads over. He really wanted a centralized bank, but people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were terrified of the idea of giving the government that much control because um, it was far better to let the free market economy dictate those things. So, we can make an argument there, and if you look at the Constitution what it says, um, it is a little bit vague. It says that Congress can coin money, regulate the value thereof, and fix the standard of weights and measures. Um, You could argue that that could be meant to justify central bank. You could easily argue that, no, that was only intended to create a reliable system of money that you could transfer across state lines, because at the time of the founding, each state had their own currency. So, trying to buy something from someone across state lines was just a nightmare, and you had to go through this exchange process. Um, So, really, the idea with this was, hey, let's just make one U.S. dollar, and we'll fix the value of it. We're going to tie it to gold, and it'll be a a common medium that we can use between states. Um, Anyways, so we're not going to get into that argument of central bank or no but one thing that the, the founding fathers would agree on under this principle of a free market economy is that the government should have no place in fixing and controlling prices. Never, never, ever, ever. Now, the int- an interest rate is the price of debt. And so, the government using interest rates and controlling interest rates and setting interest rates to control the money supply and inflation is a form of price control on one of the biggest levers of a modern economy. So, no, they're not controlling the price of your chicken or the price directly, the price of your gasoline. All <laughs> that's a different story these days, too. Um, But in general, they're not controlling the price that Apple sets to sell you an iPhone or anything like that. But interest rates control inflation. And as they're moving these interest rates around to help control inflation, they're taking price control of one of the biggest segments of our economy, and that's the debt economy. But we're going to be generous at this point and assume that When the government and the Federal Reserve started monkeying with these interest rates in order to control inflation, that we're no worse off than we were before. A lot more oversight, but maybe we're about the same um, as we were before they exercised that kind of control. When you violate principles of freedom, there are always, always consequences for the worst. They come sooner or later, no matter what. Sooner or later, you have to pay the piper. So if if we're no worse off now. That doesn't mean that it's going to stay that way. All right, that's all we have time for for this segment. Make sure and come back next week where um, we'll dive into a level deeper into exactly how the Federal Reserve controls interest rates to, um, to keep inflation under control. Make sure you don't miss it. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at AbideInLiberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting LibertyYouthAcademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.